0: Um and you've turned to the book of James chapter 5, this morning we want to talk a little bit about warnings to the wealthy, warnings to the rich. Um, James gives a warning in the very first, uh, the very beginning of chapter 5, and this warning is to the wealthy. And and this is a final warning that James gives to the wealthy, but it's not his only warning. James has given us several warnings um, Uh, concerning wealth and riches and several warnings concerning the wealthy and the rich. For example, when you look at chapter 1, verse 10 through 11, you hear these words of warning. And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with this scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James also gives a warning to the rich through the poor in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, he says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, James is not seeking to paint all wealthy people with one stroke of the brush but he is offering a warning that with worldly wealth comes worldly power and too often that worldly power comes that comes with wealth is used to exploit those without power James however is not by himself in declaring these warnings we see these warnings all throughout the bible For example, when you look at the Old Testament, when you look at the prophets, Ezekiel, chapter 16, verse 49, he says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister, Sodom. And if you recall, Sodom is the city in which God destroyed and Lot and his family fleed, all but his wife, who turned to look back and was instantly made a pillar of salt. The city was so wicked that God could barely find a group of people that 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 was that was righteous, that was walking upright, and that he could preserve in that city. And so Ezekiel says in chapter 69 that this is their guilt. This is what they were guilty of. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Most people think of sexual immorality and sexual exploitation when they hear of Sodom, but Ezekiel has other faults in mind, the prosperous ease that this city enjoyed, the self-indulgence as a result of that ease, the lack of regard for others as a result of that indulgence, the overinflated ego that comes with that kind of ease and that kind of indulgence. The prophet says that this greed was at the root of Sodom's guilt. Ezekiel's not alone in offering warnings regarding greed and wealth. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 8, Isaiah says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Again, the warning is against excess, using power to take more and more from those without, until there remains nothing left. For anyone else. Isaiah is warning here against wealth, wealth with a blind ambition, that is, that continues to claw and grasp for more. We see these type of warnings all throughout the Old Testament, but it is not just limited to the Old Testament, and neither is it limited to James. We find even in the New Testament and other places warnings regarding wealth. James' older brother, older brother who happens to be the savior of the world and the Lord of all, Jesus Christ, has plenty to say about wealth and riches. And oftentimes, he himself is giving the sharpest warnings against it. One of the most shocking passages concerning wealth in Scripture is, in fact, a passage that comes from the mouth of Jesus. Matthew chapter 19, verse 23, he says, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. With great difficulty, Jesus says, will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is sharing with us a, a very uncomfortable truth that runs throughout Scripture and runs directly against our American senses, and it is this. Money doesn't make it easier to live righteously. It makes it more difficult to live righteously. Why do you ask? Well, the same reason that Ezekiel speaks to Sodom's guilt, the comfort, the ease, the pride. That wealth has a tendency of lulling us into. You see, the American sensibilities lead us to believe, oftentimes falsely, that people with money are on God's side. They've earned God's favor, God has blessed them. And on the other hand, people without money are often seen in the exact opposite light. God opposes them. They are out of favor with God. God has perhaps even cursed them. And we shouldn't expect anything less in a country like ours when you think about it. I mean, we represent 4% of the population of the world, and yet we have one-third of the world's wealth. We are conditioned from very early on in our lives to define our success by how much money we have and to define our failure by how little money we have. In fact, we are often led to believe that true success is an endless pursuit. In other words, there is really never enough. We are always chasing after more. At least we are conditioned to believe that that is the worthwhile pursuit to continue to chase. And when asked how much is enough, America's motto is just a little bit more. In fact, we can see see this mentality lived out and how the wealth inequality has continued to surge in this country over the last four decades. In 1980, for example, the gap between the top 10% of this country and the bottom 90% of this country was roughly about nine times the amount. In other words, the top 10% earn nine times more than the bottom 90%. Fast forward to the 2019, and that number has crept up now, where the top 10% earns 13 times more than the bottom 90 percent. And there is no slowing down because we are rarely conditioned to see ourselves as ever having enough. However, the testimony of Scripture does not always tell the same story, nor does it always teach the same lessons. Again, like so many other ideas and attitudes and actions that we have been talking about the last couple of weeks, scripture takes on, take, Scripture's take on wealth is the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Now, again, let me preface all of this by saying that not all wealthy people are displeasing to God. Let me also say that not all people without money are pleasing to God. And let me also say that you can have money and serve God. All of those statements are true. However, we see time and time again in Scripture that some of the harshest warnings are saved for the wealthy. So before you get into this text in James chapter 5, we need to know that James is not alone in his caution And we have to understand this. If we are ever to deal rightly with any wealth that we have been given, that wealth, there is caution, grave and great caution that comes with wealth and our handling of it. Wealth is not an automatic stamp of God's approval. And if it is not handled with care, it will open us up to more spiritual difficulty, not less. As one of the great American poets of my generation, Christopher Wallace, aka Notorious B.I.G., once said, "More money, more problems." So with that in mind, I want you to look back in James chapter 5, verse 1. Look, it says, "Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you." First question in the text is, who is James talking to? Is he talking to the unbelieving rich or is he talking to the believing rich? The Christian rich or the non-Christian rich? Most likely, this message is to the unbelieving wealthy with an indirect warning to the believing wealthy. James is speaking in language typically reserved for the wicked. Weep and howl. Weep and wail is typical language that the, that the prophets would use when speaking to a nation in judgment, when speaking to a nation that is under the wrath of God or facing the wrath of God. However, the warnings shouldn't be ignored by the believing wealthy. Anybody who has ever heard or ever had, rather, any wealth understands just how easy it is to slip into the frame of mind that James is highlighting In chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, anybody who has ever had any money knows how easy it is to set the way of the wicked and the way they handle wealth as the standard for the way we should handle wealth. Another key for us to better understand the type of people that James is speaking to is found in the very first two words of the chapter, come now, come now. We hear these words. This is the second time we've heard them. In the last two weeks, we heard these words also in chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. He began that passage with those two words, come now. You may recall this first come now in chapter 4, verse 13 through 17, came as a warning to the boastful, to the presumptuous, presumptuous, to the arrogant, to those who, who, who would say to themselves, tomorrow we will go into such and such town. And do business and make a turn a profit, make a trade. Basically, the warning was given to the people that says, I'm going to go and execute whatever plans I desire, whatever plans I've laid out, because I am in ultimate control of my life. This was this, this warning in chapter four was a warning to those who considered themselves to be in control of their own destiny. People who figured that their plans and their strategy and their genius and their resources were the key to their destiny, to their success. People who figured that all of these things were what gave them control over their lives. To these people, James said, you think you're wise, but your wisdom is from the world. You are not in control. God is in control. Your life is a mist. Your life is a breath that, that disappears in cold weather instantly after coming forth from out of your mouth. You are not in control of your life. God is. And for you to believe anything else, James calls it evil. This leads us to the second come now in chapter 5. The reason the language is the same is because the people are the same. The people who try to believe that they have, or the people who believe that they have complete control over their lives, have all the makings of being the type of people in chapter 5 that James is warning and saying weep and wail. This isn't so hard to believe when when you think about it. The person who looks over his life and only sees his hand at work in his success has a tendency to look at those less successful and see only their hand at work in their lack of success. This is how we end up seeing others as less than us. When we see others as less than us, we aren't far from actually treating them as less than us. Oppressing them, exploiting them, cheating them, abusing them. You see, when we can't see the unmerited and unearned grace of God at work in our lives, it becomes difficult for us to display and share that grace with others. So the arrogant and the boastful, those say that I am in control of my own destiny and my genius and my plans and my strategy and my resources are are the only things that get me where I want to go. Are the same people that say, because you aren't smart enough, because you don't have the resources, I can treat you however I want to. The arrogant and the boastful and the greedy and the uh, exploitative are oftentimes the same people. So James warns this group of the coming judgment of God. And like a really, really, really good courtroom lawyer, James lays out four accusations. The first accusation is this, that you are a hoarder of your riches Verse 2 and 3, it says of chap- in chapter 5, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Instead of uh, allowing their riches to be used for the benefit of others, they have taken their money and used it to the benefit of Of themselves alone they haven't seen anyone else worthy of sharing their wealth with so instead of their wealth being used for the benefit of others it is now just stacked up and rotting away according to James both the silver and the gold are corroding now of course many people will say well gold doesn't really corrode but I think that's precisely James's point Even many of the material things that we think will last forever, James, in the spiritual economy and the kingdom economy is saying that they are only fleeting. James gives us us a similar warning to this type of hoarding in a parable that he shares in Luke chapter 12. Or Jesus, rather, gives us this warning in Luke chapter 12. He says in chapter 12, verse 16, the land of a rich man produced plenty. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But Jesus said to him, fool, this night, your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And he closes with this, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Before Jesus tells this parable, he shares these very important words in Luke chapter 12. Listen, one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Worldly wisdom says that one, the one who possesses a lot is more valuable than the one who does not. James and Jesus say that there is one who accumulates so much that his possessions will ultimately serve only as evidence of a life wasted on the day of judgment. It will serve as proof That instead of living a life that is rich toward God and rich toward others, they were rich towards themselves and themselves alone. This is not meant to criticize people who save and invest for the future of their families. The Bible says in the book of wisdom that we call Proverbs. It says that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And so we know that it is right and good to invest and and save for your family's keeping. And yet Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6 verse 19 through 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where... Thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You've heard it a million times, but I would continue, I would like to continue to repeat it a million more. The management expert Peter Drucker once said, Tell me what you value, and I might believe you. But show me your calendar and your bank statement. And I'll show you what you really value. What does your bank statement say about what you value, saints? What does your accumulation say about what you value, saints? What does your closet say about what you value? Have you made room in your life for sacrificial generosity? Have you you made room in your life for sharing From the bounty in which the Lord has blessed you with. James is warning us that if we don't, the very thing we try to hold on to will be the very thing that eats away at us. It will be the very thing that destroys us. Wasteful, selfish accumulation doesn't make us livelier because, again, remember, one's life is not found in the abundance of his possessions. No. Wasteful, selfish accumulation makes us colder. It deadens us to the grace-filled life. It deadens us to the generous life that God desires for us to live. And this is not the only charge that James lays at the feet of the wealthy. The accusation, too, is Found in verse 4, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James, in his second accusation, says that you are exploiting the laborers in your fields. According to one theologian, this period of time in which James writes was a time in which there was an increasing concentration of land that fell in the hands of a very small group of wealthy landowners. And as a result, many of the farmers were forced to earn their living by hiring themselves out to those rich landowners and were being exploited in the process. A very wealthy few was buying up all the land, leaving those without wealth with no other choice but to work for them for much less. If that doesn't sound familiar, then we probably need to unstop our ears. This is a practice that is unfortunately very familiar to our world and sadly oftentimes to our own country. We've seen our share of exploitation in our country's history. From slavery in the 17, 16, 17, and 1800s, to the terrible practices of convict leasing in the late 1800s, to the corrupt implementations of sharecropping in the early 1900s. All of these practices of labor exploitation were born from those with power, carrying a higher regard for their own comfort than the humanity of those working underneath them. But you don't even have to look to the past to see exploitation, you can look in the now. We still know of fashion brands, for example, that provide clothing at the cost of child labor for pennies on the dollar. We know immigrant workers are exploited every day and all around the world at individual personal levels and at corporate levels. They are paid pennies on the dollar in exchange for just simply not being reported. We know homeless men and women who hold signs out that we drive by that says we'll work for food. And they are often given chunk change to do odd jobs around homes and around businesses. Brothers and sisters, all of this is exploitation. James is warning the wicked wealthy who are always looking for an opportunity to take advantage of a desperate worker. And he says to the wealthy, the desperate tears that those poor workers have cried out against you have reached the ears of God. And God will eventually respond to those tears and to those cries. If this language that James uses sounds familiar, it's because it is. He gets it from the law. He said "And in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 14, we hear this. You shall not oppress a higher worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor And counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Godly wisdom with our money requires not only that we be not hoarders of our riches, but it also requires that we not be exploiters of others. It requires that we pay fair wages for services that are rendered to us. It requires that we advocate for those that are being exploited. And we hold people that, who hold the powers that be accountable when they exploit. It requires that we leverage our own power to ensure that people with no power are being treated fairly. How do we do that? Well, we do that not just, pursue, not just by pursuing the cheapest price for work done for us, but by pursuing a fair price for work done for us. We do that by holding companies accountable with our wallets when we discover that they are using exploitative practices to provide goods and services to us. There's websites that you can literally search and find out who is doing a good job in terms of paying people fair wages and not exploiting people in this country and in people, people in countries abroad. We do that by tipping good if we're being waited on at a restaurant. We do that by paying our employees well if we manage employees. Why do we do all of these things? We do them because each person we encounter in this world is an image bearer of God. And any exploitation done against an image bearer is an, ex- an, is an assault against the one who they received the image from. And so James lays this accusation at the feet of the wicked wealthy in this text. The third accusation James lays is found in verse 5. He says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of Of slaughter his third accusation is that you have taken on an ease of living in the midst of a suffering people accusation three is really the combination of accusation one and two in the midst of the last days where we should be keenly aware of how near the coming of the Lord really is and should therefore not look to hoard riches but instead be liberal in our sharing of those riches the wicked wealthy in this text have instead chosen a life of opulence and a life of luxury while not only ignoring those without wealth, but even exploiting those without wealth. So they protect their life of luxury at the cost of others' suffering. As Americans comparing ourselves with the rest of the world, we should read statements like this with great concern, great pause, great reflection. As we mentioned earlier, our wealth is beyond comparison when it is laid against the rest of the world. But as Americans comparing ourselves with ourselves, we should read these statements like this with great pause for concern as well. In 2010, there was a study done by a group of scholars. They conducted a study or they conducted a survey of about 5,500 people. And they asked this question. If you were appointed the king of the United States, in other words, you could change anything. And the United States had a population of 100 people. And the ideal share of personal wealth was represented in one slice of pie. And the country had 100 slices of pie. What would be the ideal distribution of those slices? Now, of course, this is America. So we certainly wouldn't give or we certainly wouldn't think to give everybody one slice of pie each and call it a day. Because after all, some people work harder than others. Some people are smarter than others. Some people are more gifted and more talented than others. And then ultimately, and they ultimately should be compensated or it should be reflected in their earnings. And then on the contrary, some people don't work that hard. And it should be reflected in their earnings. And this group got that. And so when they begin to lay out this ideal distribution, they said the top 20%, 32 slices of pie. Second 20%, 22 slices. Middle 20, 21 slices. The fourth 20%, 13 slices. And the bottom 20, 11 slices. Seems reasonable. But what they discovered is the ideal world is not the real world. No, the actual distribution of the American pie is actually a lot more horrifying, and a lot more telling. See, we live in a country where the top 20 has 90 slices of the pie. And the remaining 10 slices are left for the bottom bottom 80. So the second 20 gets 8 slices. The middle 20 gets 2 slices. The fourth 20 gets no slices. They have no personal wealth. And then the bottom 20 is left with a negative slice. In other words, they owe when they die. What's even scarier is that we live in a country where many of the top 20 continue to look for more slices of the pie. And, of course, as we as a country, even though we own one-third of the world's wealth, we continue to look for more slices of the pie. Now, again, let me stress Should others who work hard, others who display enormous gifting, others who display enormous talent and enormous intellect and wisdom, should they be compensated when they do so? Of course, yes. And should others who display sluggishness and apathy have that sluggishness and apathy rewarded? Of course not. In fact, one of the apostles himself says if a man doesn't work, he should not eat. But even given all of that, when you think of the wealth of this country compared to other countries, and when you look at the inner dynamics of how wealth works within this country, is there any better example of James's warning than our own culture? And yet we continue to hunt. Yet we continue to search for more to the point James declares in his last accusation that these wealthy that are operating in wickedness, that they condemn and murder the righteous. Verse six, he says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. With this hoarding, this exploitation, this hunger for luxury in the presence of suffering, James says this leads to murder, and not just murder of any people, but murder of the righteous, murder of those walking in the character of God, murder of those who embody Matthew chapter five, the Beatitudes, the blessed are those. Is James describing murder In the first degree, or does he have something else in mind when he says this, this condemnation, this murder? Well, one theologian thinks that he does have more in mind, and he points back to other ancient Jewish literature to make his case. He says this, listen, quote, James probably has in mind the practical outcome of the actions that the rich take against the poor to cheat them of their land and take away their gainful employment. The poor starve to death. And he quotes the Sirach. He says this from one Jewish piece of literature. To take away a neighbor's living is to murder him. To deprive an employee of his wages is to shed blood. James is saying, the exploitation of others for your own ease for your own comfort, leaves you guilty of the deaths they suffer. Why would the wealthy in this text, the wicked wealthy, go to such lengths? Why would they exploit? Why would they hoard? Why would they fight for more and more luxury in the face of suffering, even murder, to preserve their positions? Why would the Christian wealthy be tempted to do the same? Well, because we have been conditioned to see money as security. We've been conditioned to see money as safety. We've been conditioned to see money as salvation and sovereignty, control. We've been conditioned to believe that if we have enough money, we no longer have to depend, have to depend on God for our future. We can control our future ourselves. So what do we do? You may recall that Jesus tells a story in Luke 16 about a man who fits the description that we find of the wealthy, wicked in James, chapter 5. He's a man with enormous wealth, a man of self-indulgence, a man who most likely found his identity, his security, his salvation, his safety, and his wealth. A man with practically everything. Jesus calls him simply rich man. But there was another man in Jesus' parable, a man poor and a man sickly, a man that was pitied, a man with practically nothing, a beggar. Jesus calls this man by his name, Lazarus. And one of these men died and went to be with God, and the other man died and went on to suffer in hell. And I'm sure you can guess which one went where. Yes, the rich man went to hell. With no name, the poor man went to hell with an identity given to him by God, thus with his name intact. You see, the rich man had everything but the one thing that he had to have, salvation in God. While the poor man had nothing except for the one thing that he had to have, salvation in God. And that made all the difference in eternity. You see, it doesn't matter how much money you accumulate, no dollar can buy your way into the presence of God. There is only one price capable of gaining your entrance into the presence of God, and that price has been paid, the price of Jesus' very own blood. But see, this truth, this truth about Jesus dying for us and spilling his own blood for our salvation, that any man who lays down his life and embraces Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Savior of the universe, shall be saved. This truth will not only change your final destination, when it is fully understood, it will change how you get to that destination. While many of us have trusted Jesus Christ by faith, we oftentimes treat our money like we have not. But when you finally understand the gospel and you see Jesus as he really is, how, how you live your life begins to change. When Jesus becomes your safety and your security, you don't feel the need to hoard your riches. When Jesus becomes your delight and your pleasure, you don't feel the need to accumulate more and more luxury and opulence. When Jesus is in control of your life, and you know he is in control of your life, you don't feel the need to keep chasing money in the pursuit of more control. When Jesus is your salvation, you no longer have to look to money To save you. Money is not your God. Money cannot save you. There is only one God. And salvation is only found in his name. And that's where our hope must lie. That's where our security must lie. That's where our safety must lie. That's where our comfort and ease and rest must lie. And saints of God, when it lies there, when our salvation lies there, then all of a sudden, we're able to loosen the grip of our money, sharing it liberally and freely. We're able to loosen our grip or the grip on God's money and use that grip to cling to him with everything we have. Would you pray with me? God, we love you so much.